you can just find one trustworthy companion, you don't need six or ten, just ask the Lord to bring one who can share that sacred space with you. Because that's where transformation happens, where we have someone who listens to us with compassion, with curiosity rather than judgment, and helps us to glimpse God's invitations in the midst of chaos and churn and upheaval and joy. That's what we're called to be for one another. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast a place for honest and unhurried conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and our guest today is author, spiritual director, and speaker, Sharon Garlow-Brown. In 2018, Sharon was awarded Christianity Today's Fiction Book of the Year, and she's authored a number of books, including Sensible Shoes and, most recently, Feathers of Hope. Sharon's a unique writer, weaving in spiritual formation themes into fiction. Good, thoughtful fiction. I had a wonderful conversation with Sharon from her home in Michigan as she was preparing for a move to Scotland. Okay, true story. Um, I'm sitting in my office just looking at books, and I see one of your books, and I think, oh, I really want to interview Sharon. So I went, wrote it on the list of, you know, potential guests. I have a team who helps me decide. And and then the next day, <laughs> I get a random email. I, I mean, it's just, I don't know if that's maybe the first time we've emailed. And it just was like, oh, wow. Okay, I, I really need to talk to Sharon. So So here we are. Welcome. Here we are. Thank you, <laughs> Nate. It's so good to be with you. Yes. And the email, where we share this love of Van Gogh uh, and, and uh, um, with the interview with Carol, which I just uh, loved. Y- you worked Van Gogh into your new book, too. Yes. Uh, yeah. Could you tell us just a little about your love of Van Gogh? I am a relatively recent convert to his work. So to go back in time a little bit, it was the summer of 2016. And I had a speaking engagement in Kansas City. And one of the women there said after the engagement, I'd love to take you to our local art museum. And I thought, sure, I'm, I'm game. And in the museum was a painting that when I stood in front of it, I had a visceral reaction. I didn't know if I was going to burst into tears or if I needed to take off my shoes and just worship on holy ground. <laughs> It just took my breath away. And it was a painting by Vincent, um, one of his olive groves. And my reaction, I had seen his paintings in other places, and I had never really understood what the big deal was, to be honest. But I went back to my hotel room and did some prayerful investigating of, you know, Lord, what was it about that particular painting that so captured me today? And that's when I discovered that he painted it while he was at the asylum. In fact, he painted a series of 15 of them. And then at the time, he was meditating on Gethsemane and the sufferings of Christ. And I thought, wait a minute, he was meditating on Gethsemane. Who is this guy? And then (laughs) discovered he was the son of a pastor who wanted to be a minister himself. And that launched me into a passionate exploration of his work. And I remember late in 2016 saying to the Lord, 
if there's something that I'm meant to do to help move the true story of his life forward, would you show me what that is? And that longing converged with a new book I was writing and discovered that this new character, Ren Crawford, loved Vincent van Gogh. (laughs) And so there we were. Um, His art spoke to her in the midst of her battles with depression and anxiety. She found him to be a companion um, in the midst of her darkness. And I fell in love with him as as I spent time with him that way. You just alluded to something that I wanted to ask you about. And uh, I'll start by telling you a brief story. A friend of mine who spent some time with Madeline Ingle, the yeah. wrinkle in time, and said to her, you know, I was really sad when this character died. And her response was, I know. It was so disappointing. And, and then my yeah. friend says, well, you know, you wrote the book, right? Like you, <laughs> um, I get the sense you write very similar. Uh, Could you talk a little about Mm -hmm. how you work with fiction? Yeah. Part of the gift and part of the the genius of the Lord calling me to write fiction is that I was not trained as a fiction writer. So I didn't know the rules and I didn't know how to do it. What I did know how to do was to sit and prayerfully listen for stories to emerge, much as I had as a pastor for many years and as a spiritual director. Um, so by asking questions, by giving space, the characters could emerge. So I always say that I don't create them. I discover them. They're revealed to me by being patient. And so I rejoice at the things that cause them joy. I, I do weep over the things that cause them pain. Um, similar to your story, I remember when I was writing my first book, Sensible Shoes, our son David, who's now 26, was 12 at the time. And something had just been revealed about a character and the pain of her past. And I was sobbing as my hands were hovering over the keyboard. And David was in the room reading and his eyebrows went up and he said, Mom, I don't understand. You're the author. You're in charge of the story. And I said, Honey, I'm not. I am not in charge of the story. And I always know when the Lord is pressing a pause button with me when I do drift into trying to control or manage or make things easier for the characters to kind of rush in um, and mitigate the suffering. But it it is all about that posture of being fully present to them, letting them um, correct me when I don't hear (laughs) hear them well the first time. Um, But they do, they come to life in that way. And I know it it may sound odd to people who um, uh, write fiction in a different way, even who have it outlined and they know where it's going and God bless them um, in that way. But my path has been more like what you described from Madeline's. It reminds me a, a little of um, spiritual direction. So you're spiritual director, you write a lot about that, but you go into that, not really knowing, I'm assuming not really knowing where this time's going to go, but being open. Do you take some of that same posture into your writing as a director? I do. And like I said, it's, it's the only way that I know how to write is, is by that, that deep listening. And um, I remember one, one particular time when I, I hit a roadblock and I was, <laughs> it was with my first book and I, I was, there was a character in distress, my character, Hannah. And I, for three days, I wrote a different character trying to reach her to help her in the midst of distress. And at that point I I remember saying to my husband, 
I don't know how Hannah's going to emerge from this. Like the loss and the grief is so severe right now. And she's not reaching for God. And I'm not sure how the Lord's going to reach her in this. And he said, Sharon, if she were real, um, would she be confident that the Lord would be able to reach her? And I said, yeah. He said, well, then maybe just back off of it for a little while, which is exactly what I needed to do. And in that, the Lord reminded me of what he had taught me years before as a pastor, that sometimes my quickness to want to be a helper short-circuited his deeper work in someone's life. And so what did it mean to give space for the Lord to do his work in the midst of, of the suffering without me, like someone whose compassion has started watching a butterfly struggle to get out of that cocoon and and if we try to help by making the struggle easier, the butterfly will die. It, it, it's the struggle that, that strengthens the wings and gets the, the goo off of the wings, if you will. And so it is when we're alongside those who are suffering. We share the space, but we don't rush them through it. We just we inhabit it with them. I assume you know how crazy this sounds, um, but it's wonderful. <laughs> it does sound crazy. My my editor at InterVarsity Press, which historically has has not done um, a lot of fiction, she says none of my authors talk the way that Sharon talks. So this is this is new for new for them too. But um, it is an adventure, and that's the joy in it for me. Nate is is just watching to see what God will do through these fictional characters who do become mirrors for us to see ourselves more clearly and windows through which we can see God's invitations more clearly. I hope, that's my hope as I write. Just I, I just want to facilitate space where readers can enter a story and see how God is reaching for them. I like that. I write fiction just yeah. personally, it's, and I do the same thing, but I don't talk about it because I know it's a little... <laughs> we don't talk about hearing voices, right? <laughs> well... To me, and this is going to sound even crazier, but it makes it a true story. Yes. Like these are archetypes of something true. And so I very much get that discovering, that waiting, that. Yeah. And then the surprise of like, oh, there we go. <laughs> yes. Um, I've yet to cry over something, but uh, I'm open. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful process. You've gone there in terms of writing about pain and suffering and, you know, really some difficult topics. What has that been like for you? And, and what do you hope for the reader in that? I have two different series of books. And I think the questions that sit at the heart of those series are a little bit different. So the first series of books is kind of my my hybrid genre books where there are characters that meet at a retreat center and they're learning different contemplative practices of prayer and being attentive to the presence of God in their lives. The, the historical, the, the, the gems out of our Christian heritage that um, many of us perhaps were never introduced to. And so the characters are learning that along the way and they all have struggles and they all have losses and they all are experiencing, to different degrees, God's healing and transformation and freedom from captivity as they journey with God and with one another and the gift of community. So um, they are not easy books, but hopeful books. 
The second series, which I began writing in 2016, the Shades of Light series, addresses a different issue. It really looks at issues of chronic affliction and particularly mental illness. So none of the characters in the first series are dealing with disability um, or things that, that aren't being healed and transformed. So the question that sits at the heart of Shades of Light is, if the Lord does not remove the cup of suffering from us, how does he keep us company as we drink it? How does he enable us to drink it? What does it mean to know him as the man of sorrows acquainted with our grief? What does it mean to meditate on the cross of Christ, the suffering Christ who, yes, is risen, but we don't rush to resurrection. We sit with the suffering so that that suffering enlarges our capacity to receive the joy and wonder of resurrection life. And so it includes all of the anguish and the ache and the longings for all things to be made well, even as we live in the tension of the not yet. And I think it, in many ways, it's a harder series to read, resiliently hopeful, but perhaps not in the way that we want to define hope. What do you hope for a reader? Particularly with the Shades of Light series, I hope that a reader comes away with um, renewed or deepened confidence that we have a God who is with us in everything, no matter what. That we have a God who is for us. That we have a God who did not withhold himself from any of our suffering, but entered into the full weight of it in ways we cannot comprehend. And this is the one who keeps us company. And this is the one who invites us into the intimate communion of suffering. That's a sacred space that we can share with Jesus when we are overwhelmed with uh, being crushed and pressed. He was the one who was crushed and pressed. And so by the grace of God, when we're crushed and pressed, it's good wine that comes out, you know, that he could sign his name on the label and say, yeah, that's... By his grace, it's good stuff. You've written enough fiction books at this point. To be a fiction writer, <laughs> you know, solidly. Do you see yourself as a fiction writer? That is such a great question. Because it took me so long to make the transition from I write fiction to I'm a fiction writer. And I don't know yet that I'm there completely. Nate, because the, it's such a, an experience of being supernaturally empowered to do far beyond what I know I could do in my own strength, that it's hard for me to embrace the identity of, I am a fiction writer. It, 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 the Lord enables me to write fiction. I think that's the best way I can say it. And I couldn't do anything of what I'm doing in fiction or in real life, right? I mean, let's be real without him enabling, empowering, inspiring, leading, guiding, um, it's him. And my privilege is to show up and say, just keep offering my next yes. You know, every here I am to the Lord is a response to his here I am to me. And, and that's the only way I know how to live this, this life, whether I'm writing fiction or, you know, living my ordinary details of an ordinary day. How does your work as a pastor, spiritual director, mm. inform your stories? It's that 
posture of deep listening. So it's deep listening to the person who's sharing the story. And that's a sacred space too, right? That place of, of vulnerability and um, there's a fragility in it. There's a, a courage in it when someone is sharing the deepest places of their soul. So it's a privilege to be alongside. That's what I bring into my storytelling is I get to accompany these characters in the deepest point of view, very intimate point of view with them and receive their stories and tell their stories in ways that honor them, but more than honoring them that invite readers to see themselves in the story, to recognize the movement of God in their own lives. And so that's, that's how that, that posture of pastor and spiritual director has shaped the way that, that I write. I'm always asked, you know, are, are the characters based on real people? No, I, I'm in each of them, the, the good and the bad and the ugly and the being redeemed, uh, for sure. Um, all of my compulsions and my sin patterns and my resistance to God and the way the Lord has revealed his kindness and grace and truth to me. Those themes get woven into my books inevitably. We write out of what we ourselves have written, right? The Lord taps the well and we see what what emerging. <laughs> but they aren't they aren't based on I'm not in a spiritual direction session listening to someone's story and say, Oh, how can I use this? Right. That would be a sin <laughs> pattern for me, right? Making everything utilitarian. And I I could easily, if I had been writing in my twenties, Nate, that's the way I would have been doing it. How can I use this story <laughs> to tell a different story? And so I, I do want to be aware that that could be a compulsion for for me as a writer too. Um, thankfully, the Lord didn't call me into this kind of ministry until I had a lot more years with Him um, under me. And I think that's made a difference, too. Yep, to be able to keep the story sacred, right, yes. with the person and not as a, a kind of kiss and yeah. tell, let me yeah. <laughs> take this in. Yeah, absolutely. This theme of spiritual friendship, could you talk a little about spiritual friendship? Let me answer the question by giving an example out of the Shades of Light series. I think a, a fair criticism of my book, Shades of Light, which is a deep dive into mental illness, is that the main character who struggles with mental illness has an unrealistic amount of good support and spiritual friendship around her. <laughs> and I could have written the story that is more common where someone struggling with the oppressive weight of depression, who struggles under the weight of condemnation from well-meaning but uncomprehending people who say things like, if you just fix your mind on Jesus, if you just memorize scripture, if you just prayed harder, you ought to be well, right? All of that, which is very isolating. I could have written the story that mirrored that reality. Instead, I wanted to cast a vision for what spiritual friendship looks like, for what good, authentic, God-breathed community can look like? What does it mean to share the space of sorrow with someone else? And so each of my books um, really emphasizes the gift of companionship on the journey. And I always say to readers, if you can just find one trustworthy companion, you don't need six or ten, but just ask the Lord to bring one 
who can share that sacred space with you because that's where transformation happens, where we have someone who listens to us with compassion, with curiosity rather than judgment or being evaluated, and helps us to glimpse God's invitations in the midst of chaos and churn and upheaval and joy. That's what we're called to be for one another, how we're called to be with one another. So that's my hope. My, one of the best things I hear from readers of my books, and there are study guides for each of the books because I want to encourage community. I want to encourage those spiritual friendships and conversations. And what I hear from people is I have a longing to connect in community like your characters do. And where do I start with that? So yeah, it very much sits at the heart of, of my work because I have been the recipient of that kind of community. And I know what a gift it is. And I know how hard it is and how patient sometimes we have to be until we find it. But um, the Lord is faithful in that. Yeah, I was, I was thinking how unique and maybe bold to have study guides with fiction books, but um, <laughs> I bet you that happens a lot then, doesn't it? Folks get together to read the book and then, hey, <laughs> I kind of want this too. Yes, it taps the longings and the aches too. What does that look like for you in, in your life, spiritual mm. friendship? Oh, I have been privileged to have wise mentors for many years who invested in me, took time to encourage, to correct um, gently and lovingly with truth and grace. Um, I've had the gift of wise friends. Um, we've lived many places over the years and um, I could look at each place and name people that maybe it was just for a season where they, the Lord brought them alongside to share that leg of the journey. Others who have been alongside for the long haul. Um, but their, their names and faces come to mind with an awful lot of gratitude. And especially now I'm in this tender space of, in just a few days, um, moving from a 20-year home here in West Michigan to Scotland. And so I'm saying a lot of goodbyes and a lot of thank yous um, for these gifts of the spiritual companionship along the way, including I'll get to see um, this week my very first spiritual director, who was a Dominican sister, Sister Diane. And um, her wisdom certainly made its way into, into my work. What will that look like for you in Scotland as you're, there'll be gaps mm -hmm. with these losses. Yeah. I ask that because this is a, just a really common thing I hear from people of, particularly people who are growing deeper in their life with God is it often comes with a sort of isolation and, and loneliness. So. Yeah. I think that, you know, what we can, can affirm is that, um, that even with the good changes, even with the ones where we are absolutely confident the Lord is in it, the Lord has opened the doors, the Lord is leading us forward, even those changes bring grief and loss. And to take time to name that as lament to the Lord, even as we can also celebrate with gratitude the goodness of what He's done. But I know that this season upcoming will be an opportunity for me to sit with the Lord and welcome His 
tender kindness in caring for me in the losses and being honest about those. I, I learned that the hard way with a, an international move about 20 years ago, well, longer than that, 23 years ago, where I was so focused on the Lord has done this, the Lord has done this, it's good, we're called, that I completely disregarded all the grief and loss that was associated with it. And I ended up very sick and hospitalized. And um, it was a learning opportunity for me in terms of the necessity, the centrality of lament. Culturally, we we don't do grief well or no. endings well. No. And I really, I'm hopeful. I guess it'll, it'll take us some time to tell, but the pandemic has certainly given us opportunity to embrace lament in a corporate setting in ways that we hadn't done before. I hope we don't forget those invitations as we, whatever emerging from pandemic looks like. Um, but I think particularly in American culture, we, um, well, even the way that we, we cast funerals, right? It's celebrations of resurrection. Um, and yes, we are people of the resurrection, thank God. And there's when a loved one who knows the Lord goes home, there's so much to celebrate. But if we're not giving space for the depth of grief, which is the expression of our love, um, if we can't do that in a corporate way, even in a funeral, um, <laughs> where do we do it? For many, it's just too painful. Yes. So denial is an option yes, yes. <laughs> that works it, until it doesn't work. Until it leaks <laughs> and it will leak. Mm -hmm. But it's, it can be frightening to face these things. Jesus gave a good example of that, didn't he, of being with grief? Yes. I love that picture in Gethsemane you mentioned earlier with Van Gogh. And then that kind of the courage it would take to not only ask people to stay up and pray with you, yes. but when they don't, to call them yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's bold. Not yeah. a lot of us would do that. I love that part of it. And I also, I think what gets me about that story too, Nate, is that I can't think of another time in Jesus' life. Uh, get a little choked up here. When he asked someone for something for himself, just just be with me in this. Just stay awake. Just watch and pray. And so, if we can tap into that particular anguish and sorrow in the heart of the Son of God, in those lonely places ourselves, where we can't find someone to watch and pray with us, um, the Lord knows what that feels like, too. There's a vulnerability to ask. Yes, there is. And what a gift when people ask us mm -hmm. to join them in their grief. Yeah. That's a holy place. Uh -huh. I always hear that from people. If I, I don't want to burden you or, you know, I don't want to. And, and I want to say, you're giving me a gift. Like yes. you don't, you know, it's something sacred there. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you a really simple model that I've started years ago in terms of spiritual friendship? Yeah. Um, 
for I think it's probably 10 years now, I meet every week, same time, for 30 minutes with a guy. What I think has made it work all these years is it's just 30 minutes. I can do that. Yes. And we have this very generous cancellation policy of yes. sorts. <laughs> you text five minutes before. It's a busy day. Yes. Great. See you next week. And it's so simple. I mean, it's so simple. But you clock some years with that. One of the most important relationships in my life. Hey, could you tell us a little about Abiding Way? Yeah, Abiding Way is um, a ministry that my husband and I um, felt led to led into a number of years ago as just a, a way to um, create space for people to be with God through retreat um, and also through a daily podcast um, where we offer Lexio Divina that slow and prayerful listening to the Word of God. And so it's just me reading a short scripture text four times with silence in between. We have a couple of different options for people if they want some prayer prompts with that, or if they just want the silence if they're practiced in it as a, a way of prayer. And so we, we offer that daily. As I said, an opportunity for retreats, um, those in obviously during pandemic shifted online. And I, I really, I've appreciated Nate, the, um, as much as I was, I was doing all the in-person things up until the pandemic, I appreciate the online options because of all the barriers that are removed for people. And it's not just travel cost. It's providing space where someone who, for whatever reason, might not be able to be in a corporate setting. Um, whether that's infirmity or affliction or social anxiety, but it creates this space. And, and what I hear from people who participate is that it has this effect of, they feel as if they have my undivided attention, that I'm speaking just to them. It's, I think it's kind of the Mr. Rogers effect, right? The way that he was <laughs> able to be so intimately, seem to be so intimately um, attentive to me as I was watching him on television. And I think that's actually what it taps in some people is that this is a forum where the Holy Spirit is at work very intimately. And so as we move forward um, on whatever it looks like on the other side of pandemic, I will return to in-person, but I'm not going to give up the online opportunities either. It's a wonderful thing to be able to sit in my chair with my cup of tea and connect with people from all over the world and share that space together. And so I, I don't feel led to give it up, and I'm really happy I don't have to. <laughs> I had not thought about it as having potentially an, 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 a more intimate place because yeah. of the Mr. Rogers effect. That's good. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah, and I'm not distracted it, by the people that are sitting next to me and how they're engaging, right? I'm not, my feelers aren't out in a room um, watching for that as a participant. I'm, I just can, can listen. Huh. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's I've heard from multiple people that it does work. Writing? Are you, what's next? I am in a season of um, laying fallow and just 
allowing the spirit to plant seeds. I'm paying attention. I'm um, prayerfully gathering. I'm reading some uh, really well-written literary fiction that um, just taps my longing for beauty and the beauty of language. Um, I, I don't write until I sense the Lord says now. And um, it's kind of a this gestation pregnancy phase where you eat things that maybe you don't normally eat. And, um, and so <laughs> I always know when I'm, uh, if you will, pregnant with a book um, in terms of what my reading diet is and just the ways that God quickens my attention. So the characters, um, I- I'm not done with these characters. Their lives are continuing. Um, my latest book, Feathers of Hope, takes place in August of 2018. Um, so there's still time to play with pre-pandemic. I, I'm not ready to write about life in a pandemic. And I don't know that any of us want to read a novel about life in a pandemic at the moment. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm just gathering. And the other thing I'm, I'm praying about right now is a children's book. InterVarsity Press just launched a children's imprint um, doing children's books as IVP would do. So spiritual formation and justice issues. And and I, I'm prayerfully playing with that. I re- what I really want to do, Nate, is I want to translate <laughs> Lament for kids. And I want to give um, adults, parents, caregivers, neighbors, um, an invitation as well into the practice of Lament and why it's so key to our life with God and with one another. Oh, and, and how timely. You mentioned a couple times the pandemic that, you know, whole yes. generations yes. traumatized and what that means. Um, Oh, that's good. That's really good. Sharon, it's so good to talk to you. And your work has meant so much to so many. Just thank you. Thank you. Nate. And likewise, the ministry of Renovare, I can't think of another ministry that has meant as much to me in terms of my own spiritual formation, how God has shaped and formed me as Renovare. And so thank you for the privilege and honor of speaking with you today. Really appreciate it. And that was Sharon Garlow-Brown talking about her new book, Feathers of Hope, from the Shades of Light series. You can learn more about Sharon and her work at SharonGarlowBrown.com. That's Sharon, G-A-R-L-O-U-G-H, Brown.com. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. I'm grateful for all of you who helped make this work possible. You can support Renovari and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovari.org slash donate. Renovari is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on events and our institute on our website at renovari.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morcon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well.